Hello and welcome to another edition of Jaffa Cakes for Proust. Joining myself, Mooncat, is Ocho. Hello. What year are we going back to in the time machine? We're going to the year 1968 because it is a time of revolution. But not the kind of revolution that some listeners may be thinking of. I think they know us by now. They know exactly what kind of revolution we'd be talking about. And as I said that, I also just remembered that everybody who is listening to this has in some way seen the link and it actually says that the subject matter is London Weekend Television. So, yeah, there's no point in trying to do any funny business in the opening of the show because nobody's listening to it completely oblivious to this. Originally, we were going to talk about the whole ITV franchise change in general. This all goes back to us getting some scans of some TV Timeses and being particularly interested in looking at what we had for July and August 1968. There's going to be a lot of dancing around on this because we're going to be taking positions contrary to our normal positions in some ways. Oh. And we have this terrible balancing act. How much do we assume that our listeners know about what happened in 1968 and why and the whole nature of things. Okay, well, shall we, in the space of 30 seconds, or thereabouts, put into context what London Weekend Television is and why it came about? ITV, commercial television, the independent television network, it's made up of 16 or 17 individual companies operating out of regions. Before 1968, three of these regions have weekend splits. So the company that transmits programs on Saturday and Sunday is different from the one that does it Monday to Friday. These regions are awarded as part of a government-granted franchise administrated by the Independent Television Authority. These licenses are not forever. They're occasionally re-advertised. They were re-advertised in 1967. Some companies kept their licenses. Some companies lost their licenses. And of particular interest is what happened to the London Weekend franchise. So ITV, it's raison d'etre. That's right, isn't it? Oh man, you are getting into this I've been watching Weekend mindset. Well, I've been watching clips of Aquarius, for goodness sake. But their thing, from the outset, was that we're going to give people what they want and not what television people think they should have, which is a sort of dig at the BBC. Because BBC, Reefian values to educate, to inform, and to entertain. Now, it's not as if there wasn't any education or information on ITV, but the emphasis was very much on entertainment. And quite understandably, because of course it was commercial enterprise. Early ITV actually had infomercials, believe it or not, which were outlawed a few years later. But you had little sort of televisual magazines which were programs that were purely there to sell you a particular product. But the ITA tightened the rules a few years later, and so it was then strictly, for a long time, I, sort of, I think about it sort of 30 years or so before you then got things like sponsorship and what have you cropping up. It was very much, you know, program, advert, program, advert. The BBC had had similar things in the early days of television. They just didn't really mention brand names. They were called shopping guides. <laughs> there's idea of the kind of thing that was out there, but I don't think brand names and prices were mentioned. ITV's been going, as you said, for 13 years at this point, relatively successfully. There has been a publication called the Pilkington Report that was commissioned in 1960 and published in 1962, in which some of the finest brains in the country got together and said, hmm, ITV is a bit populist. Maybe we need to broaden our horizons. The Pilkington Report led to the start of BBC Two, and for a little while, that's where all your highfalutin arty business was. However, as you said, Franchise Round comes along, 1968, and here's this consortium mainly made up of ex-BBC people and led by David Frost, and they have this idea that they can bring something a bit more cultural to the masses on commercial television. We've watched some documentaries and there seems to be a narrative being sold that London Weekend came in and it was too highfalutin and they tried to bring culture to the masses and they shouldn't have. I'm not sure how much I agree with that being entirely the problem. I think it's partially an attitude problem. Because ITV had not been wall-to-wall, take your pick and double your money. Even ATV had shown operas. ABC had had... Armchair Theatre, which had started out as being fairly mainstream and quite 
middle class, supposedly, but had been shaken up. Well, maybe I'm buying into another narrative, but the, the, the story is, you know, partially shaken up by Sidney Newman coming in to their drama department and them getting a little bit more kitchen sink in some of their productions. Of course, you have Granada, which definitely has an ethos of television as people's theatre, among other things, and they're producing some very hard-hitting work. Uh, one available on DVD, Sergeant Musgrave's Dance, adaptation of a stage production with a 19-year-old John Thor, if you're interested. Birdie. Does he look like he's 19, though? Oh, hell no. <laughs> so ITV could do culture and had been doing culture. I think it's partially a class thing because it's the kind of frothy entertainment they're doing is the kind of frothy entertainment that working people like, and they are being given too much of it. So I think London Weekend is partially the Pilkingtonization of ITV. I'm not saying that the Pilkington Committee were necessarily a bunch of snobs, but I think there are some underlying assumptions and biases coming through there that were overlooking the work ITV had been doing. Again, an attitude thing. Not a case of, look, do the things you do really well better. Do more of these things and less of this. Another quasi-rethium phrase, make the good popular and the popular good. No, there seems to be a slight assumption of, oh, you just make trash. Okay, let's consider one aspect right at the outset, which fits in with the narrative of events, because we're talking about the beginning of the, the whole process. I mentioned at the outset that a lot of the people involved in London Weekend were ex-BBC, and current BBC at the time. And that was one of the things that swayed the ITA in their decision was having all of these very experienced TV people in that consortium's lineup. Is there an argument that even though David Frost was not exactly what you would call steeped in the virtues of public service broadcasting, you know, he understood business, given that you had so many BBC people in that lineup, is there perhaps the possibility that they didn't really understand the ITV system. And what I mean by that specifically is that they didn't really understand the horrible business of turning a profit. The business of turning a profit, also the business of getting networked. Business of turning up at the meeting and saying, we have made this show, you should put this on in all the regions because it's so good, you should not show one of your other shows. Mm -hmm. But again, that is... The business of turning a profit because if Lou Grade at ATV, of course, he's quite often seen as sort of LWT's bogeyman within the ITV system. If he's presented with a lineup, and we'll talk about some of the programs in a minute, if he's presented with a lineup that he does not think is going to get eyeballs on Saturday night, then straight away he's thinking about the profit margin for ATV. There's also partially revenge, maybe. Yes, possibly, yep. His company, ATV, had had the London Weekend franchise, and I think everybody knew they were probably going to be shown the door. And they were. So he's already got an interest in not taking London Weekend's programming. There's one thing that I haven't spotted in the research that we've done for this program. And maybe it's just a huge omission on my part, and maybe we'll be flooded with press cuttings and what have you. Having gone through those TV times, because we've got hold of about sort of a thousand or so, scans of TV times a couple of years back and you know a lot of them from the 1960s and what have you. You know, we've got things like the Pilkington Report, we've got things like BBC people wanting to get into the ITV system and so on, we've got the ITA with their broadening ITV scope and what have you, and there's always of course politicians and other people to please. The one group of people that I don't really see figuring in any of this are the viewers. I don't remember seeing page after page after page of letters in the TV Times throughout the 1960s saying, God almighty, why is ITV so bloody awful? I don't remember seeing press cuttings week after week after week in the newspapers then saying ITV was getting its arse kicked in the ratings week after week. Okay, I, I admit that I am a card-carrying philistine. I mean, I've said that many times in sitcom club. And I sort of overplay that a bit, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really not into the arts. Despite having sat through Jean-Luc Goddard film, but there were reasons for that. Part of me is sort of trying thinking, to impress a bird. No, no, no. It was it was a university course. Any other circumstances, yes, it would have been. But no, trusting that one, you, where was I? Part of me sort of thinks, what was wrong with ITV? 
Why did ITV have to be fixed, especially as BBC Two had come along? And BBC One wasn't exactly producing 24-7 bingo numbers or anything like that. They were doing gritty drama on BBC One as well. What was the need for ITV to suddenly develop a portion for higher education as well? It's a problem of outsiders in some ways. Well-meaning outsiders. Well, yes, but we've seen... The most recent thing, I, I watched a documentary where they go back and interview a lot of people who were there at the time. Frank Muir, Humphrey Burton, people who were part of the original consortium. And they're talking about ITV like they didn't like it. It's one thing to come in and say, look, I can, I can see we need a clean sweep. But come in and say, well, what you've been doing before is rubbish and I'm here to show you how to do it better. And I've never worked in this environment before, so I think I know what I'm talking about. It's interesting, actually, that that documentary also features Jimmy Hill, who was on a lot of the people who was poached for the new consortium. And he put it perhaps a little more bluntly than some of the others who were interviewed and said the system, the ITV system, did offer the opportunity to make a pretty good load of money for the individuals as well as for the company was a chance to do the same job for more money. I've read testimonies of BBC people who said that once ITV came in, that you would hear of a BBC guy. And we're talking even down to backroom boys. It's like, oh, where's he gone? Oh, he's gone off to the commercial side and he's doing the same job for twice as much. Right, we're talking about an attitude problem. Bring on that Michael Peacock quote. Okay, so my jaw hit the ground when I saw this. There was a newspaper article from a few weeks before, from July. And it mentioned about how David Frost and his consortium were going to blow away the cobwebs of stuffy old ITV and Lou Grade in particular with his tatty end of the pier variety. And Michael Peacock, who was controller of BBC One, then poached to be controller of LWT, he said, you will not have to be a moron to get something out of London Weekend Television as a viewer. Now, you said yourself a moment ago about the importance of getting your programming on the network. What could you possibly say that would be worse as far as offending all of your soon-to-be network colleagues? Imagine going into an ITV planning meeting with, what was it at the time, I think 14 other companies around the table, and if every single one of them had that newspaper cutting in front of them, then good luck trying to get your programs on their airtime because they're probably not going to be too receptive to having their existing schedules described as moronic. And I'm just wondering if that leaks into the pre-publicity and the attitude of the pre-publicity that already there's a sense of being talked down to. There's an interesting clip, just a very brief clip of some early London weekend television continuity. And it's not envision continuity. The screen is filled with the words, this is London Weekend Television. White Helvetica on black. And he's talking about the film and he's talking about the Olympics and all on London Weekend Television and it's still only Friday. Something about his attitude irks me. He's not doing the guest in your home approach to continuity announcements. He's, it's very much a sort of sales pitch, isn't it? But there's also a slight smart alecky element. It actually sounds like something that you'd hear in a cinema commercial, doesn't it? Sounds mm. like, you know, just two minutes walk away from the cinema. But this could all be bias on my part because I know how the London Weekend story went. But earlier on, I sort of cast a bit of doubt on this narrative that were too highbrow. Let's look at their opening night. Okay, so at 7pm, LWT went on the air for the first time. <laughs> at 7pm and 10 seconds. Well, no, this is the thing because I've actually got in front of me here... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask if you want to hazard a guess at this, Ocho. Um, do you want to guess how many words were heard from the LWT announcer before the technicians pulled oh, the plug? Oh, boy. Oh, I'll be generous and say 12. Oh, well, actually, that, you, you're underestimating. According to Martin Jackson in the Daily Express on the following day, the Saturday morning, the announcer said only 19 words. This sketch show called We Have Ways of Making You Laugh, which was headed by... Frank Muir, went ahead because the crew and the audience didn't know that it wasn't being broadcast. And they only and went very out, well. Apparently so, yes. And then they only found this out immediately afterwards. 
So, the rest of that Friday evening, what have we got? We've got a sitcom, Stanley Holloway, which I think has got uh, an unusual musical element to it. Well, the theme tune was composed by Paul McCartney, formed by the Black Dyke Mills Band. I'm not too sure what Thing Me Bob is about. All my research is I didn't bother to look that up. And that's followed by The Untouchables, an import, an action show. That's not going to frighten the horses. Then you've got Frost on Friday. Friday nights is current affairs-based David Frost night. I'm not sure quite enough emphasis is put on this. People mention it as one of the things about early London weekend. David Frost three nights a week. But I think maybe that more needs to be said about the resentment that would bring about in network meetings and the possibility of exhaustion from the audience. Well, we've got three distinctive David Frost programmes in this lineup. As you said, Friday night is sort of current affairs night. And LWT at the outset did intend to have quite a large expanse of current affairs programming, which eventually they curtailed within the first year of their output as, I believe, a money-saving exercise. Saturday evening, David Frost was a chat show. And Sunday night, David Frost was the variety show, effectively a modernised Sunday night at the Palladium. That was our point. Friday night does not look too frightening from an old ITV point of view. Saturday night, Saturday night is the one that the documentary seemed to love. There's one particular show from Saturday night that keeps getting dragged out. Because again, Saturday night, we've got a variety show with Tom Jones. We've got David Frost on Saturday. It's at half past ten when we have the Saturday special. That's the one they all point to as an example of London Weekend going wrong. Now, when you say Saturday special, straight away I'm thinking of Lulu or Shirley Bassey or Scylla Black or something like that. It sounds like the kind of big sort of entertainment spectacular, probably Peter Knight with the orchestra and what have you, and Bill Manor special guest. Les there was a whatever. subsequent Saturday special with Tony Bennett. Oh, well, there you go then. Yeah. So who did that? This the Saturday night? special, the first Saturday on London weekend, it's The Soldier's Tale, music by Igor Stravinsky, book by somebody I haven't bothered to write the name <laughs> in front there's of a, me. There's a, there's, a, there's a TV tie-in book, is there? That's no. That's what you say. Look, when it's a musical show, the words is the book. It's not quite an opera. Um, and who's the conductor man? Is it Ronnie Hazelhurst or what? Well, Hihudi Menuhin. That's the guy is playing the violin. In vision as well. The original production of A Soldier's Tale, it was written for a, a theatre they had access to that didn't have the normal luxuries we expect of a theatre, like a pit. So it's perfectly natural to stage it with the orchestra in sight, actually on the stage with the performers. And I'd like to see the whole thing. Network, if you're listening, there's a lot of Stravinsky fans out there with deep <laughs> pockets, and there's also... People like us want to gawp in historical curiosity. So we've only seen clips, and the first thing we see from this clip is Barry Foster in his dinner suit, introducing himself. And Stravinsky's music is not easily mistaken for Tin Pan Alley hum-along tunes. Probably not as horse-frightening now as it would have been then. I don't know if it was an article somebody had read. Somebody was telling me about how they had somehow been given the information that Movie music has actually made people more used to dissonant orchestral sounds than they used to be. But yes, it's it's got a little bit of oomph. It's, it's the Faust legend, I think, set in World War I, and it's a bit highbrow. Well, the idea is supposedly it's too highbrow for Saturday nights, despite the fact that ABC, a company that had been folded into Thames Television at this time, had had their armchair theatre strand sometimes on Saturday nights. And some of those armchair theatres are quite challenging. Some of them are broad, some of them are comedy. There's a variety of tone. So how much of it is that this is the first Saturday? And how much of it is that it fits the narrative of Old London Weekend, they flew too close to the sun? And how much of it is when this goes out and you have Barry Foster very authoritatively introducing you to Yehudi Menuhin and then chanting his narration... How much of that is, oh, this is from the people who called us morons. <laughs> I want to put this into a little bit of context because we're saying, okay, how challenging is this? Is this really deserve its reputation? Now, the only way to look at this properly 
is to consider what was happening elsewhere on the dial. So, for a start, let's have a look. So you've got London Weekend listings in front of you, yeah? So LWT so far that evening has actually been, I'd say, relatively populist. You've got Tarzan and Frost and Saturday with Bob Hope as his guest. There's Tom Jones at half past seven, and then there's a showing of Casablanca, all before Stravinsky at half past ten. Now, BBC is pretty much matching this. They've got Simon D and The Man from Uncle and The Black and White Minstrel Show, and then they've got a film, FBI Code 98, and then 10.25 with a five-minute head start. Bear in mind. We've got Match of the Day with the traditional curtain raiser to the season, the FA Charity Shield. And BBC Two, which is where you'd normally expect to find your highfalutin, arty stuff. You've actually got... Okay, you, you know more about films. Lucy Gallant, is that... It's not one I'm particularly familiar with, but it has Charlton Heston in how So it's not particularly crazy hybrid. can it be? It's, it's relatively populous, is that fair to say? Oh, now having not seen the film, I wouldn't say that. It doesn't strike me that it's going to be on the most challenging end of challenging, though. I have no evidence for this whatsoever, but I think this is such a good idea that I think that we should actually just say this as if it happened. BBC Two, 1025, late night lineup. Let's just make a fact right now that Late Night Lineup on that particular evening was the crew of Late Night Lineup watching Stravinsky on LWT and commenting on it. An early version of Gogglebox. That'd be fabulous, wouldn't it? <laughs> and they could have done it as well. They could have, they could easily have done that. Just they don't have to have the the, the, the TV in shot, you know. So yeah, but no, do it like Jasper Carrot did it when he was live on stage, you know said, here's what's on BBC One, here's a film, and gave away the ending. Hey, they could have done that. They could have told you how the social tale ends. And said, right, there you go. So I don't want it to look like we're in favour of the ghettoisation of culture. But yes, this wasn't doing anything BBC Two wasn't doing. BBC Two now covered the entire country, so it's not a case of it was in the early days of BBC Two when it hadn't rolled out across the UK. And also, if BBC Two had done The Soldier's Tale in 1968, they would have probably been doing it in colour. Who are you satisfying by doing this? It's not just the BBC that we've got to consider, is it? Because we need to have a look around at the rest of the network. And as usual, there's ATV being stubborn. And they're actually giving airtime to both Frost on Saturday and also to Fingamy Bob, delayed from the night before, and then Tom Jones. But they've then got what they call the X-Film, Elmer Gantry with Burt Lancaster. And so you're not going to have any of your arty-farty fiddle playing good on, on ATV. None of that. And elsewhere, it's going out in Southern. It's going out in Granada. Let's see. Uh, Yorkshire. Now, hang on a minute. That can't be right. What, Yorkshire started half an hour early? Yes. Yorkshire got on at half past nine. You're kidding. Well, that, that is a surprise. Um, Maybe the hope is catch them early enough and they might forsake match of the day. Five minutes after match of the day started, no chance. <laughs> that is quite a surprise. That's also the case in Westwood as well. There's quite a few regions taking it. Maybe they're burying it. Maybe they happen to know that their, say their 9 to 10 ratings are generally always... Well, of course, Yorkshire Television's only just started, but maybe they have enough research to know that this is a good place to put it where it won't do too much damage. Sounds counterintuitive to me. Well, we're, we're talking about getting on early, getting match of the day. Michael, BBC2, BBC1, and now LWT Peacock had his whole theory of if you get them at half past seven, they'll stay with you for the rest of the night. So I assume that's part of what this was betting on. I wonder also if there is an element within the companies that are airing at half past nine, there is the possibility that they're thinking... If people have already been tuned in to Tom Jones, for example, they're not going to then switch over for the second half of the film that's on BBC One. So it's a relatively safe place to put it. Or the BBC have seen it and movement of the day by five minutes. My own gut instinct about A Soldier's Tale is that it would perhaps have been better suited for a Sunday night. I'm just still coming back to the attitude problem thing. Because you and I were not arguing for the highbrow to be hidden on BBC Two and give the people what they want. I don't think either is really satisfied with post-1990 Broadcasting Act television as it got more and more populist. Enemy at the door. 
Seven <laughs> fifteen on a Saturday night. How wonderful! It's just that the pre-publicity gives that whole idea of this is what you should have. Not try it; you might like it. Not look. We're going to put this here. Give it a go. But just this idea of bringing culture to the masses. You, that's you. You're the masses. You need culture bringing to you by us, the middle class metropolitan elite who went to the same schools as the people at the ITA, which may have been one of the reasons they trusted us with this. But London Weekend seems to be television by television people for television people. It's that, again, weird balancing act and weird sort of contradicting ourselves. Dumbing down is bad. On the other hand, some of those traditional working class jobs, manual labour, that kind of thing, is mentally tiring in a way that intellectual fields probably are not. It's not so much a case of... The working classes are not educated enough. That's why they're doing those jobs. That's an assumption that you find both sides of the political spectrum. And yes, it's not such a bad idea to say, look, I know you're tired, but we can't just keep giving you everything you want. Got to just slightly goose your brain a bit. But just that thing of, well, look, this is a gift from the gods of culture. Okay, this is going to sound like a weird deviation, but... Something's just sprung to mind just now. And I think that, because your musical knowledge is much better than mine, so I think that you'd be better placed to actually explain what this was for anybody who didn't see it. But the Eurovision Song Contest this year did very good viewing figures for BBC One, as it always does. And everybody knew exactly what they were getting from the moment that they sat down until the moment that they finished. Except for that wonderful little halftime musical piece. Now, can you, first of all, can you describe what that musical piece was? Because I'm not quite sure exactly what genre you would call that. Oh, the percussion piece. Yeah, you do realise that that's the time most people go to the loo and then go get something to eat and drink and come back for maybe the second half of the musical piece or they have a chat or they look away. <laughs> I wasn't paying maximum attention. I would have said that that was the case before Rifferdance. But since then, there's now an expectation that the halftime show is going to be something. It's not just going to be piss break. I don't know. Sweden kind of irritated me that time. They went, oh, the Swedes. Oh, it's it's self-deprecating. Kind of got on my nerves. But I remember, yes, it started with a massive percussion piece. And maybe I drifted off. Okay, so it was. I, I would say that it was an experimental piece. It was a conceptual piece, something that was specifically written for that slot in the show, and it was unlike anything that was on the show musically. And it was quite polarizing on Twitter. Certainly, a lot of people saying, "What? What is this bullshit?" And then a lot of other people, myself included, think it's bloody brilliant. I wish Saturday night was always like this on BBC One. Now, if that had been a scheduled part of the programming on BBC One on any given evening, how well would it have done in the viewing figures? They managed to get it in with the Trojan horse, so to speak, of Eurovision, way hey, and here's this lovely little piece slap bang in the middle of it. And you might think, I'd like to hear more of that as time goes on. And you might sort of go elsewhere and start looking for bits and pieces. Last year, BBC Four showed a Val Dunican show from 1986. And you had... A nice little bit of shtick, I suppose you would call it, with Dennis Taylor, uh, who'd you know, been the World Snooker Champion the year before, and you know himself and Val Dunican kind are of doing some bits and pieces, and that's all very much straightforward light entertainment. And then you had Evelyn Glennie doing her little bit on the show. Now, if it had been herself in concert for an hour, that probably would have been put onto the BBC2 ghetto. But by bringing all those different elements together then you got exposure to different bits and pieces. And that's what variety is all about. Now, there's something about having Stravinsky, oh, and probably not even pronouncing that probably, having that slap bang in the middle of Saturday night sort of makes me think, yeah, they've sort of forgotten about all the other elements. Maybe they should have done what they didn't do, and like a lot of the other companies did do. Of the other companies that week had sort of big gala openings and here we are, and this is who we are, and this is our purpose, and so on. There was Bob Monkhouse at Yorkshire Television, and so on, and Thames had their evening when they opened up, and what have you. I wonder if LWT would actually have done well to have something like that, maybe on the Saturday night, not even the Friday night, and just have lots of little bits and pieces of all the stuff that they were going to have. And if you had 
a few minutes of Tom Jones alongside Yuhuni Menuhin, then perhaps that would have ingratiated them a little bit better with the audience. You almost say they should have done a slightly loftier palladium, maybe every week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Do a variety show, but just tip the balance a little. You've already told the audience that you're going to have Cliff Richard as the headline act in that show, and he's going to be doing the last quarter of an hour, let's say. Are a lot of people really going to switch off if they suddenly get exposure to a little bit of classical music for a few minutes right in the middle of that program? I don't think so. Well, for another example of how, as I said, TV by TV people for TV people, one of their plans was to do a play, a comedy play, a satirical comedy play, about the ITV franchise awards and competition. That is very self-indulgent, isn't it? Unfortunately, it no longer exists because I'd like to see David Batley doing his David Frost impression. But it was all thinly veiled, fictionalised versions. I think it's centred around Bakerloo Television going for the London Weekend franchise. It was shown later than intended. I'm not sure if it was meant to be like... Maybe it was actually the second weekend. So I'm guessing that's early enough to be as part of the pre-publicity. So this thing of, yes, what? not only are we going to come and pat ourselves on the back for how clever we are, we're actually going to ask you to come and watch a, a little in-joke. <laughs> I mean, the writer, uh, Emily Lethbridge, had written scripts for the Wednesday play and things like that. Where it wasn't a kiss. <laughs> Somebody in the boardroom had, a, had written an idea down and said, this would be a fantastic idea. But too soon. Maybe 1969 is the time to do that kind of thing. You actually, you, you raise an interesting point there. Is it fair enough to say that generally speaking, people, I think probably from even maybe your 30s onwards, people don't generally speaking like change. And... Sometimes change is inevitable, but by and large, if we can avoid it, then we don't really like having a completely different set of surroundings from one day to the next. Well, we said we weren't going to talk too much about the whole general thing, but we need to mention Harlech. Without getting too bogged down in what happened in Wales and the West, and it was quite a bloodbath, for reasons they had launched a lot earlier than any of the other new franchises or just new licenses from the old franchises. And one of the newspaper articles we looked at said they're an example of how not to do it because they'd come along and they had got rid of all the familiar faces from the previous company, TWW, and brought in as many new people as they could, not all of whom had the experience at the time. And they started losing viewers. And also they were too Welsh. The name Harlech had to be changed. It was changed a couple of years after. But the thing is, is a good chunk of their patch is the other side of the seven. I think there was a faint feeling of resentment. London Weekend should have been looking at what was happening there. It was a unique opportunity for everybody to look at a new licensee a couple of months or a month and a half before everybody else was starting. And I presume they didn't because they don't seem to have learned the lesson. What are you changing and why are you changing it? If I can jump forward to 1982, if I haven't made this confusing enough already, TSW in the Southwest. Original plan, we are going to keep the on-screen look and presentation style very much the same as our predecessors, and we're going to make exciting, dynamic new programming. And of course, eventually they find we don't actually have the money for exciting, dynamic new programming. So we're going to keep the programming very much the same, and we're going to do exciting, dynamic new presentation. <laughs> but that's the thing. That's why, yes, Minister, if your ideas are going to be stared boring, then I think they actually <laughs> mention Stravinsky, don't they? And modern sculptures and a grey suit. Whereas if you're going to announce something that's big, terrifying changes, then we have Algar and leather-bound books behind you. <laughs> and London Weekend is exciting new programming, exciting new everything, exciting new presentation. And it's it's a case of, look, pick one and go with it. I mentioned a little while ago that I don't remember seeing the TV Times full of complaints about ITV's programming throughout the 1960s. But certainly some people would write in and say they weren't happy with this, that or the other, but not across the board. There were letters to the TV Times post-August 68 saying, why have things changed? And 
with anything else, when a service, service provider, any kind of entity, when it suddenly changes or renames or rebrands or whatever it may be, then people sort of think, why? Why is this necessary? Why does this have to happen? And yeah, something like that. I mean, a play about the actual process itself. I mean, that really should be a discussion on late night lineup. It just feels like this is no longer mine. This ITV that I knew once before, this doesn't feel normal anymore. still feels normal on weekdays when this Thames TV lot turn up. I mean, it's still sort of vaguely recognisable and what have you. But the weekends, this is, this is something else. This is something odd. I wonder what's on BBC One. The, you, okay, you mentioned the second weekend. Of course, by the second weekend, we don't have LWT or Thames or anything else. We've got ITV yeah, that's for a couple of weeks. One of the things that occurred to me was saying the narrative that sold they were highfalutin and that's their downfall yeah surely maybe the the really big downfall is the fact that they were gone for two weeks they only had a first weekend and no second or third did they have a fourth weekend the sunday night is august the fourth the first weekend august the fifth well you're the strike expert Okay, so it had already started before LWT came to air. There were sporadic ACTT disputes across the network, and they were partially as a result of new companies, new working practices, and so on. And you had specific disputes in some regions to do with demarcation, for example. You also, around about this time, when it came to a head a couple of years later, you had disputes involving the use of colour equipment. And Yorkshire Television, of course, was the first all-colour studios and what have you. Anyway, the upshot was that the management managed to keep the service staggering on over the course of the weekend. And we had a Frost on Sunday program that came from the World of Sports studio. And it was the management who were running the cameras and so on. By the following Monday, in order to then keep the show on the road, so to speak, the ITV companies for the first time ever and really the only time in its history apart from a couple of days after they were on strike in 79 came back then you had a network ITV service and you had strange situations like for example adverts going out nationally and some national advertisers getting a bargain in comparison to the normal prices that would have had to pay to get UK wide coverage and other companies who only wanted to advertise their carpet warehouse in Bradford, let's say, having to suddenly be faced with a choice of, well, if you're going to put an advert on ITV, then you're going to be across the nation and this is how much it's going to cost. So ITV's collapsed into one service with network continuity and by a lovely bitter twist of fate, the Frost on Sunday program, for example, is replaced with repeats of ATV's Markham and Wise. So it's almost like Lou got his revenge on, on Frost within week two. Managed to personally displace them. Yeah, so we yeah, we just looked at the first weekend. Weekends two and three are the independent television unified service. So I'm wondering how much of that is also to blame. The loss of momentum, the general confusion. For all we're saying you shouldn't call them morons, they're not going to be that bothered, that much obsessed with differentiating between which company's bringing them which show. I'm guessing it must have depressed viewing figures across the board. I don't want to get too off topic here, but I want to take issue with something and then immediately do an about face and and pretty much back it up, which is going to sound strange. But I mentioned before about the documentary, The Battle for Saturday Night, that was on BBC4 last year, presented by Michael Grade. And they touched on the early days of LWT, and that's where we actually saw the footage of The Soldier's Tale. Michael Grade implied in that that because of the state of LWT in its early weeks in 68, it was going to be 10 years, effectively, before ITV had a lost shot at getting the audience on Saturday nights. I would take issue with that in as much as it wasn't that the audience en masse said, oh, ITV, just sort your shit out, for goodness sake, you don't know what you're doing. The programs that are on the TV are different to the ones that are in TV times. I'm getting adverts for a bloody carpet warehouse in Bradford that has got nothing to do with me that I can't get because I live in Cornwall. Therefore, just clear off, I'm going to the BBC and I'm going to come back in a decade. There's probably some truth to the, the, the idea that people knew where they were with the BBC in 68 when all that was going on and 
may well have stuck with them. But nonetheless, I don't think that the damage of a couple of weeks of industrial action and a few weeks of LWT experimentation necessarily lost ITV Saturday night audiences for a decade. At the same time, fast forward a decade, 1978, and here's Bruce Forsyth, who's been poached to do Jean's show on LWT, and he sings a little song about how all the ITV regions have got together so that this programme will go out at the same time across the network. As late as 1978, that was a thing. And it is something that you see looking back at the listings throughout the 1970s, that you have each and every region sort of doing their own thing. Now, it's not so much, I don't think, a problem as it would be these days. If suddenly 14 different parts of the UK had all slightly tinkered with this Saturday night's ITV schedule and all the programmes are going out at slightly different times, then you'd see Twitter have a bit of a meltdown. But in this day and age, of course, you've got individual TV times for each region, so everybody sort of knows where they are. And yet BBC, with the big BBC machine, the big BBC publicity machine, and how well they are disposed at plugging what not only BBC One's doing, but what's on BBC Two at the same time, and what BBC Radio was doing, and so on, and they all sort of join up and, and what have you, then I think having that national schedule probably gave them an advantage to an extent. So how true or false do you think this thing is, that they were too highbrow? You can argue with the ratings, even though different companies would have different companies taking measurements, and they'd argue the toss about whose measurement was best placed, the BBC did do better with its schedules opposite LWT's programming, by and large. And the majority of the ITV companies bailed on LWT within the early weeks, looking at the schedules, having a look at where David Frost was positioned, apart from ATV, obviously. Most of the other companies, within a few weeks, have joined ATV in nudging the LWT programmes to the edges of the schedules. Big game for Yorkshire Television, Friday Night Gazette generally going out at 9 o'clock in most places rather than 11 o'clock. That being said, YTV made a Joe Orton play. Mind you, Rediffusion, before all this had happened, had done a version of Entertaining Mr. Slot. That's why I'm leery about buying too much into it. It was the age of the Wednesday play, the rise of Dennis Potter. Is it just because it was Saturday night? And the other thing is, is that the slight sweetening you get in documentaries... Jacques Brel is alive and well and living in Paris. It's a big off-Broadway thing in 1968, and there's apparently, not long after it's been a smash on off-Broadway, <laughs> London Weekend does its own televised version with the original cast. A clip of it was used in the fight for Saturday night, but they chose two little bits of the same song to make it look weirder than it really was. That song had a melody and a verse, but they just showed two bits of the chorus to make it look like... Oh, they just chanted the word marathon in increasingly deranged ways. <laughs> and Mooncat, tell me about the big lie. <laughs> yes, now, unfortunately, I've not been able to track down a copy of this. It, it's a real bugger that a program from 2005 apparently is difficult to actually find. In 2005, ITV's 50th anniversary, there was a documentary series called The Story of ITV, and it was in the South Bank show slot. And there are bits and pieces of it on YouTube, but not entire additions and I can't find this bloody clip but I remember it quite vividly. They were talking about the early days of LWT and they showed this clip of what looked like four dancers all of them in silhouette and they're all doing their weird movements and they're all in frame they're all in a single frame there's no multiple cameras it's just one single shot they're all in the shot and occasionally one dancer will sort of move towards the lens and smear paint on the lens and then move backwards again. I did actually think then this is the same slot as Ant and Dick's Saturday Night Takeaway. Is that is that right? I mean, this this is even before my mind was blown by the whole enemy at the door business. It turns out that that wasn't even an LWT program. I remember seeing somebody on a forum saying a few days afterwards, "Oh, that was I think that was actually something that Rediffusion had done," and it was just sort of used as representative of something a bit weird that may or may not have gone out on Saturday night, but we know that it wasn't the BBC. Well, it therefore... could have been a Saturday night if it was really fusion. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I'm possibly misremembering that, but anyway, it wasn't LWT. I remember that much. And 
somebody must have thought, well, this is an ITV archive, therefore it's not BBC, therefore, look at this, this is weird. This is not what ITV does. <laughs> ITV does the comedians and bullseye and what have you. So I don't really have a definite decision to come down on, but it's just the possibility that, okay, on the one hand, there's a chance that some of that early highbrow stuff doesn't exist anymore. The Jacques Brel thing and the Soldier's Tale only appeared for survivors. Telly recordings. So maybe there isn't the stuff to illustrate it. But on the flip side of that, as we were saying about London Weekend patting itself on the back, doing its own satirical take on its rise to power, television and television people love to talk about themselves and their medium. Do you think there's also an extent that this story is told by people who weren't from London Weekend or came into London Weekend after Michael Peacock had been fired? and like to tell it to pat themselves on the back saying, look at this bunch, we would never have made that mistake. <laughs> yes, I think a lot of it will be down to documentaries of any era having to truncate days, weeks, months, years of material and stories and events and nuance and so on, all down to a matter of seconds. So obviously detail is going to get lost. And I think one of the fairest accounts, to be honest, is from LWT themselves in the 10 years of LWT program, hosted by Dennis Norton. And he is quite even-handed about it in terms of you know what the company was trying to do and some of it worked, some of it didn't, and so on. And then over time, they then took a more populist approach and so on. But things did emerge from early LWT, which still exist today. So the fact that you've got perspectives on ITV on a Sunday night is part of the South Bank show lineage. And the South Bank show was developed from Aquarius, which was developed by Humphrey Burton, who was one of the original people involved in LWT. So the fact that you've got arts programming at all on ITV, you could say is derived to a certain extent from the aspirations of the new company in 68. We should also take into account as well the social situation in 68. The Palladium had been through a few different incarnations by then, and it wasn't as popular as it had been, for example. And there's an argument for saying that perhaps ITV was starting to look a little bit creaky, and what was ahead of its time in 55 might have been a few years out of date by 68. So I don't think that it's all bad, early LWT. I think the biggest failing is that they didn't consider the balance sheet enough to be part of the ITV system. A lot of the programming they wanted to put out would have needed some form of public subsidy. Maybe something along the lines of PBS, for example, in the States, would have been more along the lines of what they actually wanted to do. But that just wasn't the funding mechanism. There was not going to be any license fee money, obviously, because that's for the BBC alone, and the money was going to come from the advertisers, and the advertisers want eyeballs. And you can say as a programme controller, look, we had a million people watching that concert, that classical concert the other night. They've all had exposure to classical music and so on. Isn't that wonderful? Even if only a, a 1% of them go off and take an interest in it, isn't that, isn't that an achievement? Isn't that something good? But then the advertisers are saying, yeah, but when you showed that Sean Connery film last week, you had 10 million people. 10 million people who were watching our advert for Shredded Wheat. And this week you had 1 million people looking at our advert for Shredded Wheat. They're just looking at the numbers. That's all they're interested in. There's always going to be a conflict. And it's probably not surprising the way that things ended up. We're looking at this from the point of view of not having been there at the time, but we are old enough to know when ITV at least still had a good program balance on it pre-1993 before the popular stuff really kicked in. And I can honestly say that I'm a regular ITV viewer these days. Well, this has been a personal reaction podcast. It's not meant to have been a history lesson. We've been kicking things around and not reaching conclusions. Further reading. First of all, I'd say get yourself onto YouTube, type in 10 years of LWT, and you will find the aforementioned program with Dennis Norton. The... BBC4 documentary of Michael Grade that turns up as a repeat on BBC4 every now and then. And as far as actual reading is concerned, if you can get hold of a copy of it, get yourself onto Amazon and get hold of David Doherty's book, Running the Show, 21 Years of London Weekend Television. 
described as a case study in the management of a television station, an account of the company's troubles and triumphs. There's also trendsdiffusion.org. There is indeed. On the web. Do they actually have a separate London... I know they have a separate ABC section, separate Rediffusion section. Don't know if they have a separate London Weekend section, but they have essays. They've got loads of stuff. They've got loads of good stuff on there. On a slightly different tack. Nothing to do with London Weekend or 1968. But we're talking earlier about clips being used, wrong clips being used, and the same things being come back to. Uh, There's an article on Transdiffusion called The Edit That Rewrote History. That's just a little example of how documentaries going back to the same clip again and again can cause things to be said that are not entirely true or impressions to be given. There's stuff available on DVD to watch. One show that we omitted to mention that went out on the Sunday night, the first Sunday night of LWT, a play written by Johnny Spate. If there weren't any blacks, you'd have to invent them. That's available on DVD, is it not? Yes, that's available on DVD. It has the original 1968 version and the 1974 remake. With a slightly more star-studded cast, you've got Bob Hoskins, Leonard Roster, Richard Beckinsale. The original has Leslie Sands, Jimmy Handley, and John Castle. And there's a very nice Frost on Sunday compendium as well, which has got that opening weekend's Frost on Sunday program, the strike effect. Haven't they put out the Friday and Saturday ones as well in compilations? Yes, they have. There are also Frost on Friday and Frost on Saturday compilations available. And fortunately, though... After all the dust had settled over London weekend, everybody learned their lesson and nobody ever tried to do anything too highfalutin on a new franchise on ITV ever again, apart from 1983. Oh, and who was at the centre of that? <laughs> the mission to explain. <laughs> Great days. And then you end up with foolishly thinking, people don't just want to hear sitcom podcasts. They want to hear vague reminiscences of things that the contributors can't even remember. Hang on, surely we should have started the podcast like this and then finished up by just dissecting Not and Nelly. We've done this the wrong way around. There's a good reason we started with the Children's Film Foundation. Maybe this should have been cast three or four, that's all I'm saying. I'm sorry, everybody. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed Bootle Saddles. Next time, we'll have to consider very carefully what we talk about. Do you want to talk about a topic or do you want to talk about... Something we can watch and dissect. I want to talk about more vagaries. I want to talk about the intangibles. Well, we'll be back next month and you'll find out what won the day. Populism or vagueness. And don't forget, next week there'll probably be another sitcom club. Next week I think it's meant to be going straight. And we'll be back next month on Jaffa Cakes for Proust. <laughs>